Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called, A Crisis is a Terrible Thing to Waste. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, October 13th, 2013. A crisis is a terrible thing to waste. The economist Paul Romer made that observation in a meeting with venture capitalists back in 2004. He was commenting on the challenge that rising education levels in other countries pose for the United States. But the soundbite resonated with so many people that today it's become a meme of sorts. Some of our worst experiences provide fertile ground for our best opportunities. In the Old Testament reading this week from Jeremiah 29, Israel is in exile in Babylon. In the epistle, in the epistle from 2 Timothy 2, Paul is in jail in Rome. But in both places, God was fully present to his people. At the risk of oversimplification, the drama of God's elect people, Israel, revolves around two turning points in two places. First, after 430 years of slavery, God liberated Israel in the exodus from Egypt around 1400 BC. Then, 800 years later, there was tragic exile to Babylon in the year 586 BC. Exodus and exile reverberate throughout the Bible as two ways that God works in human history, and even in our own personal histories. The Exodus was a dramatic liberation from oppression and exploitation. It was a miraculous deliverance, a regal display of God's mighty acts of power. It's a story of divine intervention to shatter the enemy, work wonders, and break the powers of bondage. No wonder it's celebrated at Passover, even today, by Jews. Psalm 66 for this week proclaims, How awesome are your deeds! The Exodus gives us every reason to hope and pray for God's dramatic acts of salvation, both in the world at large and in our personal lives. But then there's exile. With the exile, the geography of salvation changed. For the ancient Hebrews, the destruction of Jerusalem and deportation to pagan Babylon was beyond comprehension. What had happened? Where were God's mighty acts of power? How could he surrender them to a pagan nation? The ravaged temple was both a symbol and reality of failure. Exile to Babylon began a period of subjugation, servitude, banishment, and captivity. It signaled isolation, loneliness, and even punishment. Certainly, it meant despair for the elite Jews who were deported and for the common people of the land who were left behind in the rubble of Jerusalem.
How is a Hebrew deported to Babylon, torn from home and everything familiar, to understand exile? In the lectionary this week, Jeremiah offers advice that few people wanted to hear. Writing from besieged Jerusalem, he sent a letter to the exiles who had been deported to Babylon. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Jeremiah tells the exiles to embrace their disaster rather than to resist it. There was salvation in the strange place of Babylon, as well as in the familiar place of Israel. Jeremiah tells them to let go of their past and to accept their new circumstances. He says that contrary to all appearances, and despite the foreign geography, at that moment in their story of salvation, Israel was better off in pagan Babylon than in holy Jerusalem. God was still working, only now in the most unlikely of ways and in the most improbable of places. Then there's the Apostle Paul. In his book, What Jesus Meant, the historian Gary Wills calls Paul a heroic traveler who logged more than 10,000 miles spreading the good news of God's love for Jews and Gentiles alike. But in the epistle for this week, from 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul isn't going anywhere. He's in jail. Paul writes that he's chained like a criminal in a Roman prison. Remarkably, though, he's not concerned about his confinement. He's confident that the word of God is not imprisoned. In fact, a few days after his conversion... God promised him that he would suffer much for his kingdom and that prison and hardship awaited him in every city. And so, in fact, it did. Luke records eight murder attempts on Paul's life in the book of Acts. Ultimately, he was martyred in Rome. But you'd be hard-pressed to name a person other than Jesus who did more to shape human history. Celebrating God's mighty acts of power, his dramatic miracles of deliverance, is easy. Who does not long for a personal exodus, whether for work, home, marriage, finances, children? The list is nearly endless. But we know that sometimes things don't work out as we wish, or as we think they should, or as we pray. History can take a bitter turn. 
catastrophe can overtake us, sometimes of our own making, other times for no apparent reason at all. Living in exile, far from home, in a strange space or place, bereft of all one considers good and familiar, is difficult. Living in exile demands revised expectations, courage to believe that God is still at work, no matter how bleak the circumstances, learning a new language and grammar, much as the Jews settling into Babylon learned a new tongue, in order to articulate your lived experience, perseverance over the long haul, Living in exile also requires hope about the future, no matter how dark the present. That too was part of God's message in Jeremiah 29:11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. That future was far off for those Babylonian exiles, Seventy years and two generations before the Persian king Cyrus would rout the Babylonian regime and permit the Hebrews to return home. A story told in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Hope for the future is also an admission that we can't have it all now in the present. Some of the exiles never returned home. We might imagine that God somehow needed Paul out of jail so that he could proclaim the gospel. We might think that the God of Israel worked only in Israel, on home turf. Jeremiah reminds us that God works always and everywhere, in exodus from Egypt, but also in exile to Babylon. These stories confound our expectations. We should never forfeit our prayers for exodus deliverance, but neither should we forget that God can be just as present in exilic banishment, in Rome, in Babylon, as well as in Jerusalem and in Egypt. Romer was right. A crisis is a terrible thing to waste. For books this week, I review a new book by Donna Freitas. The title is The End of Sex, How Hookup Culture is Leaving a Generation Unhappy, Sexually Unfulfilled, and Confused About Intimacy. New York Basic Books, 2013, 221 pages. A friend of mine spent 20 years in student affairs at Stanford University. When I asked him what was the biggest challenge that he observed, the biggest change across two decades, he didn't hesitate. He said, students today don't know how to have a conversation with another person. Well, if you don't know how to talk, you don't know how to have good sex. 
And according to Donna Freitas in her new book, the overwhelming majority of university students today experience a particular sort of very bad sex. It's called hookup culture. In hookup culture, you have sex with a person you may or may not know, with the explicit understanding that it does not in any way include intimacy, emotion, feelings, relationship, or any sort of commitment. The only expectation is that there are no expectations. And if one person does have any expectations for anything more, and feels used and abused afterwards, that's their own fault. Hookup sex is fueled by alcohol and fostered by theme parties based upon the worst stereotypes of both men and women. It has made dating non-existent. Hookup culture, says Freitas, dominates our university culture and anyone who tries to live otherwise finds themselves marginalized. You don't have to be a prude to know this is not how sex works. Behind the bravado of college kids is a trail of emotional wreckage. There are many bitter ironies here for our liberated culture, says Freitas. Hookup sex is degrading and abusive. In fact, it's repressive because it requires people to deny their emotions and feelings. And where is the feminist fight for agency and autonomy in hookup sex? What is sexual assault or consent when the explicit goal is to suppress your inhibitions? In her lectures around the country, Freitas observes what she calls so much sadness about hookup sex. She's convinced that most kids really do have an intense longing for meaning. Hookup culture need not be inevitable, and Freitas is working hard to change the national conversation and encourage meaningful alternatives. She has a chapter on virginity and another one on abstinence. In 2005, students at Princeton who were tired of the degradation of hookup culture founded the Anscombe Society, which supported abstinence. The following year, a similar movement started at Harvard, and the year after that, a national love and fidelity network went nationwide. Freitas laments that liberals and even moderates dismiss abstinence out of hand. Her most interesting chapter was on efforts to bring back dating, which she's convinced many kids want. Just imagine talking to a person, knowing and respecting them before you sleep with them. This new book, The End of Sex, reiterates and refines Freitas's previous book, which was called Sex and the Soul from 2008. It's based upon her 2006 survey of 2,500 college kids at seven universities. The author is Donna Freitas. The title of the book, The End of Sex. For film this week, I review Woody Allen's new movie. It's called Blue Jasmine. 
from 2013. There's very little that's funny in Woody Allen's new film about Jasmine, played by Kate Blanchett. She's a wreck of a woman who's way more than blue. She's delusional and despicable, a liar and a snob, who's now become unhinged. In her former life, she was a wealthy socialite in New York City, thanks to her husband, Hal, played by Alec Baldwin. But Hal was a crook and a philanderer who was convicted, jailed, and took his own life. Having lost everything, Jasmine tries to start over in San Francisco with her estranged sister, Ginger. The two women were both adopted into the same family, but that's all they have in common. Ginger is a grocery store clerk who's happy with her construction worker husband and downscale apartment. Jasmine can't drink enough vodka, pop too many pills, or make too many self-destructive decisions. She's a needy and neurotic narcissist. In the last scene, she's sitting on a park bench, mumbling to herself. She's the object of our fascination, pity, and scorn, all at the same time. Woody Allen's new movie, Blue Jasmine, 2013. And finally, for poems and prayers this week, we've posted another Celtic poem. It's called Peace. Peace between neighbors, peace between kindred, peace between lovers in love of the king of life. Peace between person and person. Peace between wife and husband. Peace between women and children. The peace of Christ above all peace. Bless, O Christ, my face. Let my face bless everything. Bless, O Christ, mine eyes. Let mine eye bless all it sees. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, October 13th, 2013. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.